You're listening to Design Tomorrow. You need to see Danielle. Danielle is a short film about a woman who grows old. And in order for any of this to make sense, I need to describe to you what that film looks like, or more specifically, what it's like to watch that film. It's one persistent, uncut shot. Danielle is in the center of the frame, looking straight at you. She hardly moves, and she says nothing. It's as if she's looking in the mirror, and we see through her eyes. We watch her watch herself. There's music in the background. This music, actually. The music you're hearing right now. But that's it. At the beginning, Danielle is two, maybe three, just a toddler. She's chubby, wide-eyed, and curious. A minute and a half in, she's a young adult. Earnest. 60 seconds later, Danielle must be roughly my age. An adult. Not especially young, not especially old. But weariness has already begun gathering under her eyes. It's subtle, but it's there. At three minutes, though, Danielle's aging becomes more dramatic. Time carves grooves around her eyes. Gravity pulls her jawline down. The shadow of a million frowns drips from the corner of her lips. Her expression is proud. She's going for stoic, I think, but there's something there. Defiance, maybe. At three minutes and 20 seconds begins a passage I can only describe as a requiem told in micro-expressions. Resistance. Fear. Anger. Despair. Resignation. But... At 3 minutes and 38 seconds, the drama is broken with a blink. A subtle, slow closing of the eyes, and then Danielle's face takes on a look of peace. In the last 30 seconds, that peace spreads and warms up to joy and compassion. In her final moment, Danielle swallows. Her eyebrows lift her lips tremble, and her silent, grandmotherly benediction becomes an unmistakable goodbye. After many, many views, this is my very subjective, emotional reading of the short film, Danielle. It's a story that's admittedly made easier by hopping from one frame to another, by actually clicking within the timeline and skipping everything in between my stops. Because each frame is like a portrait, a clear index of the passage of time. Watching Danielle that way makes it possible to imagine a full life, to fill in the gaps with a bigger story, a story of school, of friends, a job, love, hopes, disappointments, and loss. But if I watch Danielle uninterrupted, a different illusion is at work. I can see Danielle's face change. I can read into that, her age, and maybe even imagine, as I did just now, how she feels about growing older. But identifying what it is about her face that signals age and when exactly that happens is much more difficult. 
There are hints, but they're elusive. That's the trick of this film, watching somebody rapidly age and not exactly knowing when it happens. When I get very close to the screen, for instance, and watch her chin and her chin alone, I can see as gravity rounds and softens its edge. Just barely. But when I widen my view, I can see everything else has changed too. But this time, the change happens in an instant. I missed the details, and this abruptly older Danielle is startling. It's an illusion, of course, but how true to life it is. Today, I want to talk about illusions like Danielle, simulations who reflect back upon us more than just the passage of time, but something important about who we are. Something unique is going on right now with the tools and the technology we have that is giving us the ability to stop stretch, bend, and replay time. I want to explore what that offers us, we for whom at some point, time will end. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. We've all experienced the illusion that aging faces create. Growing up and seeing our parents day in and day out, there were times that they seemed unchanging, immortal. We'd look at their wedding pictures and giggle at these funny young things who looked kind of like mom and dad, but couldn't possibly be the same people we knew. But then, on that first visit back from school, it's as if years have passed for them and months for us. What you didn't realize then is that they're thinking the same thing. What happened to my child? The one who used to be just this big. The one who would look up at me and smile that baby-toothed grin. The one who would skip and play and laugh. And as time goes on, and as everyone grows up and spreads out into the world, and the time between visits gets longer, our faces become one another's urgently ticking clock. Age isn't a specific feature after all. Sure, people say you see it first in the eyes, or that gray is an obvious giveaway, or that time widens and rounds and softens, so you find it first at the edges. But it's more than that. 
Try it on Danielle. Stare at one feature for an entire minute. I've done this, and I suspect that, like me, it will be when you stop focusing on just that feature that you see time at work. See, age is a measure of change. Understanding how Danielle, the short film, was made, I think helps to illuminate that idea. In a piece for Colossal, the author Christopher Jobson recounts how the director, Anthony Cerniello, created Danielle. He writes this, Cerniello traveled to his friend Danielle's family reunion, and with a still photographer shot portraits of her youngest cousins through to her oldest relatives with a Hasselblad medium format camera. Then began the process of scanning each photo with a drum scanner at the UN in New York, at which point he carefully edited the photos to select the family members that had the most similar bone structure. Next, he brought on animators who worked in After Effects and 3D Studio Max to morph and animate the still photos to make them as lifelike as possible. Finally, a 3D visual effects software artist was brought on to smooth out some of the small details like eyes and hair. End quote. Cicerniello's Danielle is an animated composite of members of the real Danielle's family. Our Danielle, the one we watch, is a simulation. Now, knowing how Danielle was made, knowing that Danielle is not real, but a synthesis of imagery brought to life by machine, provides entry to another reading entirely, in which we extend Danielle a kind of humanity anyway, a personhood. Danielle is no longer a time-lapse or a facsimile of life. She's not just a portrait on the level of the many lifespan time-lapses that multimedia has given us. There's the very well-known Noah takes a photo of himself every day for 12.5 years, where each frame is a still photograph taken in the same composition with Noah at the center of it. You've surely seen this one. There's Nancy Grows Up, which is an audio time-lapse you can hear in the background here. Have a day. Have a day to you. There's 41 years and 60 seconds. There's Diego Goldberg's The Arrow of Time. All of these use photographs or audio to show the passage of time. And I've been discovering boys. Now I'll link to all of them in the show notes. But even Homer Simpson got in on the time-shrinking game when, in season 19, the animators basically recreated Noah's picture-a-day project, but with Homer, whose life flashes before his eyes after a fall. Lights flashing before my eyes. Now, his typically absurd and cartoonish excesses become almost profound when accompanied by a brooding piano. I suppose that should give us all some hope. But what all of these examples have in common is that they use plasticity of media, manipulating footage taken in real time, over decades even, to accelerate the passage of time, to bend time and miniaturize a life. And in doing that, they kind of create a life. Stick with me on this because I know it's kind of a weird idea. See, it's not the real Noah we see in those 7 minutes and 47 seconds. It's not the real Homer. It's a different one. It's a different Noah. A Noah born in the digital realm, where sim time lasts longer than real time, where life repeats over and over again. At the time of this recording, Sim Noah has lived over six million times. Because that's how many times his video, his life, was played on YouTube. Sim Nancy wishes her daddy happy birthday thousands and thousands of times. Have a day. 
and we can watch it all with a God's eye view. It makes me wonder, does the sim know what she is? Would it matter if she did? The idea of an awoken fiction, a character aware, not within the story, but of the story, and of its beginning and end and containment within a larger outside world is mind-bending and dreadful. And there are examples of that idea that I have never been able to shake. Like the villain, Moriarty. Not the Moriarty from the original Sherlock Holmes, but the Moriarty created in the holodeck of the Starship Enterprise. I've instructed the computer to give us a Sherlock Holmes type problem, but not one written specifically by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So this will be something new, something created by the computer. Exactly. Program complete. You may enter. This Moriarty was a piece of software modded to be a suitably advanced foil for an android's Sherlock Holmes cosplay hobby. Indubitably, my good woman. It's something the captain mentioned. Sherlock Holmes, Data, has been studying him. But what his creators didn't realize was that making him smart enough to provide a challenge for a robot of almost unlimited intelligence made it possible for Moriarty to realize exactly what he is. As I said before, you are only a holographic image, I know. He became aware of himself as a piece of a contained holographic universe set within a single room of a ship traveling through space. But are you sure? Oh, yes. In this scene, the self-aware Sim Moriarty pleads his case for existence. Is the definition of life cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am? Yes, that is one possible definition. It is the most important one. And for me, the only one that matters. You or someone asked your computer to program a nefarious fictional character from 19th century London, and that is how I arrived. But I am no longer that creation. I am no longer that evil character. I have changed. I am alive. And I am aware of my own consciousness. I want my existence. I want it out there, just as you have yours. That may not be possible. I cannot give you what you want. Because you do not know how to convert holodeck matter into a more permanent form. Yes, that is so. A pity. What I have seen, what I have learned, fascinates me. I do not want to die. And I do not want to kill you. What has stuck with me all this time is something you can't hear. You have to see it to feel it, I think. It's the captain's face as Moriarty speaks. It's the way he cannot hide his pity for a man whose self-awareness traps him in a permanent existential crisis, nor his fear of what desperate acts a man driven to survive might commit. My fate is in your hands, as perhaps it always was. Similarly, in the film Stranger Than Fiction, Harold, the protagonist and meta-protagonist, confronts the necessity of his death and pleads of the author who wrote him into existence can't we just try and just see if she can change it? I could change. I could quit my job. I could, uh, I could go away. I could be someone else. Harold knows that he is living in a universe created by a writer, that his life is playing out as the writer works toward the end of her story. I can't die right 
the literature professor who sees the book of Harold's life for what it truly is, replies bluntly, but not without compassion. No one wants to die, Harold, but unfortunately we do. Harold, Harold, you will die someday, sometime. Heart failure at the bank, choke on a mint, some long drawn out disease you contracted on vacation, you will die. You will absolutely die. Even if you avoid this death, another will find you. And I guarantee that it won't be nearly as poetic or meaningful as what she's written. I'm sorry, but it's... It's the nature of all tragedies, Harold. The hero dies, but the story goes on forever. See, what's true of Harold, the fictional character somehow living in the real world, is of course true of each one of us. We will die. If how and when and why are out of our control, well, suddenly being real doesn't seem to matter as much. Humanity, in the qualitative sense, is an object of the mind. We are empathy, not biology. Fiction, in all its diversity and vagaries, is a surprisingly accurate and expedient tool for understanding real life, for surveying the strange situation in which we find ourselves, we who exist. We look out upon this endless mystery from within a body vulnerable to everything. And as dwarfed as we are by the unknown, what matters in that inductive survey are feelings, not facts. As Moriarty so well demonstrates, Cogito ergo sum only goes so far. In this case, it doesn't even get him out of the holodeck's door. But that the lights go out when the program is closed is just as much a problem for the Enterprise's crew's reality as Moriarty's. Just as that the show ends when the TV is turned off is a problem for our reality, not just Star Trek's. Because we're the ones left to wonder where, in a possible multitude of nested realities, we exist and we end. Like Harold, we'll never know the true poetry of our lives from within them. We'll have to die to find that out. And even that isn't certain. The inside, I mean. The end, though, well, that is definitely certain. Fiction is a mirror, and the characters we've talked about today, Danielle, Noah, Harold, Moriarty, all these sims are living fictions. They are memento moris, all digital desk skulls upon which we may look at any time. They exploit our imagination for a good, albeit ironic, purpose. Sometimes empathy is easier to feel for someone who isn't real than for someone who is. And that doesn't make that empathy less. It's to be felt, observed, understood, and practiced. To feel for a fiction exposes our tenuous grasp of reality. Because if Danielle isn't real, well, what or who is? Are we? Who tells our story? Who listens? And who feels for us? Well, friends, that's the end of this strange story. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. Now, we've wandered quite a distance from the practical design path lately, especially today, but we're not lost in the wilderness. Asking these questions, the ones that get to the very nature of our reality, aren't meant to be just thought experiments, intellectual frivolity that only we, the fortunate, have time for. No, they're meant to get our minds and hearts in the right place to then do the work I believe we cannot do well otherwise. Questioning our reality, how real we are, is unanswerable. That kind of doubt is infinitely recursive, and many of us have knowledge and belief that keeps us from falling forever when that question pushes us over the edge. But the key here is in finding within ourselves the ability to care. If we can care, even for a fleeting moment, for a character, for the idea of a person, we can care for anyone. When we're moved by a fiction, our minds and our bodies don't know the difference in that moment between that and the so-called real thing. The feeling is always the real thing, whether the object of that feeling is real or not. We bear such a heavy burden in making the future. We're simply not good enough. On our own, our person-shaped clouds of hunger, fear, loneliness, and desire to do that without help. So take the help of fiction when you can. Let it help you feel. Let it help you learn from how you feel about yourself, about the people around you, about the people far from you. They all depend upon you, whether they know you even exist or not. We're all someone else's Danielle or Harold. Maybe we're even someone else's Moriarty. Now there's a thought for another day. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for telling your loved ones about it. And remember, what we do and think today, and of course what we feel today, can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.